Good evening, everyone. I'm Rabbi Nick Renner, and you are here, I hope you're here, for Tales of the Talmud, our Talmud study that we have here at KI, learning some of these tales, these stories, all of these pieces from the Talmud. Um, A quick recap. What is the Talmud? Who wants to dive in? Volunteer some information. Who wants to tell us a little bit about the Talmud? Any brave volunteers? It is the largest written work of the ancient world. That's right. It's the oldest. Um, so, in terms of the oldest out of so, it depends on whether or not you're going to count the the Hebrew Bible or the Torah. It comes after Hebrew Bible and Torah. It's the very beginnings of rabbinic Judaism. Um, it is 63 volumes. It's about four times longer than the next uh, longest work. Other facts about the Talmud. It's an attempt to figure out what the Torah means. Absolutely. The Commentary, it starts with the Mishnah, where it, it's a recording of discussions of rabbis, because it, it says, like in the Torah, love your neighbor as yourself, but it doesn't really say what that means. So it's kind of case law. Very good. What we call case law. Very good. So the Talmud is all about unpacking what the Torah means. Um, Bert used another word, the Mishnah, which means the Talmud is actually two written works together. It's the Mishnah, which is the first part that was redacted in the year 220, and the Gemara, which is the second part, and that is redacted, we're not entirely sure, probably five, six hundred or so. Uh, go ahead, Robert. Uh, it is sort of schizophrenic in that, <laughs> in that it contains... Uh, Laws and stories. That's right. So there are two genres, uh, literarily speaking, in the Talmud. There's law and there's stories. In this class, this study of Talmud, we're looking at the stories primarily. Um, And Bert is also correct in that it's trying to figure out how we actually make Torah law work in our lives. One of my favorite examples of this is Passover. Torah says, teach every generation uh, the story of Passover so that they experience it as if they had come out themselves. Well, how do you do that? Mishnah starts off saying, well, maybe with four cups of wine. And then they begin to flesh out the architecture of the whole thing. Uh, and so really, the Mish- in that sense, how do you tell that story? How do you share that memory? Well, the Talmud is figuring out how you actually do that. And so they innovate this great mechanism of memory we have called the Passover Seder. Other factoids about Talmud. Yeah. I know in some cases, I'm, I don't know if it's all, always, but in the legal discussions, they don't always come to a conclusion. They have the discussion, and there may be opposing views, and then it's left to the congregation, individual congregations to decide which one they want to follow. Right, so this piece about lots of different views is important. Part of what makes the Talmud so long is it preserves all the dissenting opinions. Sometimes they do arrive at a decision and say, alright, this is what the sages say, this is what we're going with. But other times they don't. Other times other people have to figure it out. But they preserve all of the argument, which is part of what's so important about it. It preserves this idea in Judaism of machloket l'shem shemaim, an argument for the sake of heaven, this idea we have that not only are you permitted to argue with religious authorities, with sacred texts, you're allowed to not only, it's virtuous to argue with sacred texts and, uh, and Torah and religious authorities, the rabbis. Yeah, Mickey. Uh, if there was a consensus, the majority ruled, but the minority uh, was also just as important because as we evolved, at some point, the minority could become the majority. That's right. We do keep the minority and the majority pieces. Um, it holds all of those different perspectives. We record it all. 
It's also, in addition to being a little bit more, I don't know if democratic is the right word in terms of upholding, uplifting all of those voices, it's also elitist to a degree. We imagine that, or we understand that the rabbis of the Talmud probably were a sort of elite within their society, having their own discourse all about how things should be or will be or whatever. Um, there aren't that many women in the Talmud, not for nothing. So there is a certain kind of elitism that uh, we get with it as well. Other observations about Talmud. Yeah, go ahead, continue. As Jews, we have two DNAs. One is complaining. <laughs> on 40 years in the desert, we're still complaining. And the second is arguing. Yes. The Talmud is very much the basis or sort of what enshrines that famous Jewish argument over the centuries and the millennia. That argument that we inherit very much is... Um, our cultural and religious legacy of the Talmud in that way. You're absolutely right about that. Another point here. Some, some of the arguments are over things that we would consider quite nitpicky. Correct. As it were. And we have trouble understanding why we would even be studying it. I can't think of an example. There was some example of what makes, a, if there's a barrel of kosher wine, mm -hmm. how many drops of non-kosher wine does it take to make it kosher? Yep. But there, there's... I don't, you probably have some of your favorite examples of... Happy to give you an example, Bert, <laughs> of some of the minutia of it. So we have the laws of kashrut, kosher. They say that you can't cook a calf in its mother's milk. Okay, that's what the Torah says. What do you do with that? Well, the Talmud begins to weigh out all of the different rules and laws around it. And one of my favorites is that if you have a meat stew and you drop a drop of milk into it, as long as it is less than one-sixtieth of the total quantity of meat stew, your stew is still kosher. Mazel tov. I don't know how many religious authorities would consider that kosher. And this is part something that's important, too. Um, a lot of Jewish law has evolved past the Talmud. For instance, there are places in Talmud where they talk about... Is chicken and cheese kosher? Can you have chicken enchiladas? Anyone want to take a stab at it? Well, one time historically, chicken was not considered meat. There you go. Because for purposes of not mixing milk and meat, good luck milking a chicken. But the Talmud rabbis sort of look at the whole thing and say, well, we wouldn't want somebody to get the wrong idea, to be deceived into thinking that you're allowed to eat milk and meat, or to think that that person with their chicken enchiladas is actually doing something that's not kosher, and then you th look askance at them for it. So it makes things more strict over time with some of them. Some of them become less strict over time, but it's an interesting and evolving project in that way. I don't, Other, I don't know if this is Talmud, yeah. but you were talking about meat and dairy. Mm-hmm. So, right, you can't, well, for, let's say a beef enchilada, that's clear, you can't have a beach. That's right out. That's definitely not kosher. But, if you have cheese, how long do you have to wait before you can have meat? Yes. Which evidently is one <laughs> period of time, and then if you have meat, how long do you have to wait until you have dairy? Which is another so is interval that, of time. Is that Talmud or is that just rabbinic? That starts in, in yes. Talmud. I mean, what am I? <laughs> no, actually, I read it My in terms right, right now, it depends on, there are different rulings in different countries. See, I heard That's right. you can have dairy followed by meat as long as your palate has been cleared, like in 10 or 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. But you can't have meat. Well, there are different takes your on house, that. We don't do it. <laughs> so one of my favorite pieces of Talmud discourse that gets into the minutia of it: What do you do with a cow udder? Can you eat a cow udder, <laughs> the piece of meat that contains milk? And how much of it can you eat? And how much can you not eat? The whole thing goes round and round and round. It's kind of amazing to see. Another favorite piece of mine. Well, we'll just keep going. Other pieces about the Talmud. Yeah, go ahead. Just that it, it 
think crossover uh, centuries and generations. Yes. With that within in just in within a story. So this is important. The writers, the authors of the Talmud, the rabbis who are part of this discussion, they're not so worried about historicity and timekeeping in the sense. So we have rabbis who we believe were real historical figures having arguments with each other, but they lived hundreds of years apart. The Talmud is not so worried about this. Um, for them, the discussion, the discourse, the argument, all of that is much more important, and they're not really writing history per se. They're really writing memory and their narrative of what's going on in that way. Yeah, go ahead. Well, there are two Talmuds. Yes, this is important too. Jerusalem and Babylonian, I guess the Babylonian has become more accepted in Jerusalem. So the Babylonian and Jerusalem Talmud, there are two Talmuds. The Babylonian was written in what's sort of today, contemporary day Iraq, um, Babylonia back then. Um, The Jerusalem one, of course, was actually not written in Jerusalem, but it was written in the land of Israel. And the important thing about this is that Talmud was a discourse between the diaspora and the land of Israel. It was an evolving, freewheeling conversation back and forth. Rabbis went between the two communities back and forth. Um, So we really get the vibrancy of rabbinic Judaism coming out of the diaspora and Israel in conversation with one another. The Babylonian is considered um, the more authoritative Talmud of the two. However, it's probably been much more edited over, for instance, the Middle Ages, the medieval era. And so if you want to look at what was closer to the original text, generally the Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud, is closer to the original, but it's uh, more difficult to read because it doesn't have those extra sort of invisible layers of editing and making it more accessible in the medieval era. So they, started, this originally? Out, they started out as one and then they... No, they, they were two separate works in Babylonia and in, and in the land of Israel at the same time. It was one big dialogue sort of going on back and forth with all of these rabbis in one place, the other place, back and forth, all of it. So they were sort of growing and evolving together. Yeah. Was there, this is called the Oral Torah? Correct. Was this intended to be written down? I read somewhere there was a debate at some point as to whether any of it should even be written. This, yes, it's the oral Torah. This was originally <laughs> a conversation, and you can very much hear the orality of it in the way that they talk to one another. They jump and flip from subject to idea to this to that, and the next thing it feels like you're in this uh, conversation with them. One of my favorite examples of this is the story of Rabbi Barbar Kama, who went on this mystical voyage with demons and dragons and all kinds of far out stuff and it begins in this section that's all about the laws about building boats and here are the rules about building a boat and it must be this size and this length and these dimensions oh and here's a story about a guy who went on a boat one time and then they're (laughs) off to the races Um, so you very much get the sense that it's a conversation going on was it meant to be written down we talk about it like someone wrote it as a book right it was not written as a book you are absolutely right um, was it even meant to be written down? Not entirely historically clear. Um, it's an interesting piece to bring forward, but it definitely didn't start as a written work. We can put, we know that much. It could have been because it, it was so humongous. Uh, uh, the and the printing wasn't until uh, what the 1400s. There's no practical, feasible way to yeah. So it was written on scrolls then. Um, I mean, how, how, you're right. If if the Talmud was finished, let's say finished by five, five or six hundred, yeah, and it was another almost a thousand years before there was a printing press. Mm-hmm. Well, they could write it by oh, hand. Oh, no, they like had. The Torah. Was it all? No, it, it, it was written on. 
Right, but it was written in books or on scrolls? I don't know what the earliest written Talmud were written on. I suspect because we have a very ancient tradition around the folio numbering of it, Mm -hmm. that these were probably folios pretty far back. Um, Yeah, about the whole numbering system of it. I can't tell you for sure, but I suspect that it being in book form is probably pretty ancient and probably gets back pretty close to when it was being written down. Um, If any of our listeners out in podcast land (laughs) know more about that, um, send me an email at rabbirenner at ourki.org. Anyone else want to chime in about any other details about Talmud for our refresher before we jump back in? I once heard... It kind of compared to Facebook yeah, in a strange way that you have these forums where people are writing back and forth. I think that's a good way of putting it. I would also say maybe not Facebook. Well, partly Facebook and that you can sort of follow a thread of a bunch of comments. Partly the way that they make arguments in it. If they're trying to make an argument, they'll pick a verse of Bible or a verse of Torah. So it's almost like hyperlinking, like mm-hmm. on the web, on Wikipedia or something, where you can link from one subject to another to another place very quickly and very easily. Is there a Talmud online with hyperlinks? There is. If you go to Sepharia, S-E-F-A-R-I-A dot org, they have a free um, Talmud collection. A lot of it's translated into English. I have the app. It's a free <laughs> app, too. Great resource if you're trying to learn Talmud. But... As many of you who have been in this group know before, Talmud is notoriously difficult to learn. You're not supposed to learn Talmud by yourself. The ideal is a kind of study called Chavruta study, which comes from that root Chaver, for friend. So the idea, and what we do in this group, is we get into pairs or groups of three to read through this whole thing together um, before unpacking it as a full group. So, with that, I'm going to get us into Talmud study. So, take one, pass them down. Here we go. Let me put some on the other side, too. Here we go. We're going to pass these out, this story. And we're actually not going to start with the Talmudic source just yet. Tom is already getting ahead of us, I can tell. (laughs) It's on the back of it, on the side of it, that is not the Talmud story. There is... We got more coming around this way. Okay. Both sides. I think we have enough. But we may need to share a little bit. Who knows? If you came with somebody and want to share with them, that would be lovely. Um, We want to keep them going around, passing out. We'll get close. So I'm doing something a little bit unusual with this story. To get us into this topic today, I have on the reverse side of it a Craigslist ad. This is from the best of Craigslist. There's a whole section of that. If I can get a volunteer, a brave volunteer, to read this Craigslist ad for us. Wanted one rabbi versed in dark Talmudic arts to create one golem for a household of three. Golem will perform rudimentary household chores, such as dishes and sweeping, basic math tutoring for our daughter in the third grade, and basic household security. Golem must be obedient and fairly unobtrusive on our everyday lives. We will supply all materials needed, clay, twigs, calfskin, parchment, etc., needed to create the golem. All you need to do is use your magical ancient rabbinic skills to animate said golem. Please note, we are looking for a rabbi to create a golem, so anthropomorphic, uh, an anthropomorphic being created from inanimate matter from Jewish folklore, not 
Golom, a former hobbit turned into monster and looking for precious. <laughs> Not <This> Gollum. <laughs> Gollum, sorry. We have no interest in living with Gollum. We want a Golom. Please respond. <laughs> Serious inquiries only. Location, Astoria, New York. It's not okay to contact this post with <laughs> services or other commercial interests. Uh, compensation, no pay. Thank you, Bert. So they want a free golem. Yeah, they want a rabbi versed in dark Talmudic arts to create a golem for them. You can see the date up at the top. It was posted back in 2010. This was an actual entry on Craigslist. Really? Really. I don't know if anybody responded. Um, I tried to, but the poster was already done. I was in rabbinical school. I really felt like this was just a great story looking to happen. Um, But they didn't respond because I think they were off. But yes. <laughs> this is where we're going today. This is why I thought this would take us into it. So, this is kind of a ridiculous posting, this ad on Craigslist, looking for somebody to make an animated um, go- golem for to serve a family. Um, we hear stories about the golem from Talmud. We have stories about golem... Um, from, I believe, Prague um, and the golem of these Eastern European Jewish communities and their contemporary living rabbis who claim to have seen this thing in the attic of this shul in Prague. I, I don't know the whole story off the top of my head, but it's an interesting thing. So here's a family that wanted their very own golem. We're going to use that as sort of an introduction to today's piece of Talmud. And now we're going to break into Chavruta. So, Find uh, one or two other people, pairs or groups of three, to learn together. I'm going to ask you all to read it aloud with your chavruta, your chaver. Find people to read this together. If it's confusing, don't worry. We're all going to go over it together at the end. Read it together aloud. One, two, three, go. So we're going to come back together now. So... If I can have a brave volunteer to read, we're just going to go line by line through this, helping to figure out what's going on all together, now that all of our different chevrutot, our different pairs, have gotten a chance to read it. So who wants to be the first brave volunteer to take a little chunk? Go ahead. Elijah the prophet would come regularly to the academy of Rabbi Judah, the patriarch. Okay. Elijah the prophet. Who's Elijah? The prophet. The prophet, very good. <laughs> Elijah is a remarkable character in the Hebrew Bible in that he never dies. Elijah ascends to heaven in a fiery chariot, and then he comes back and visits the rabbis. Um, a lot of religious authority, a lot of rabbis believe that Elijah comes and visits us in our time, that if you have an opportunity to a connection with a stranger in some way, somebody who was just there to help you out with loose change for the parking meter right at that moment, you didn't have enough, maybe you had an Elijah moment too. Elijah is also present at um, Brit Milah, at bris ceremonies, and Elijah is present at your Passover seders. I don't know if anyone remembers. Yes? And he drinks. He drinks an awful lot that one night. I don't know if you uh, had the same Passover experience I did, but this experience of pouring the Kos Eliyahu, the cup for Elijah, and opening the front door, and then when you're not looking, your grandfather slugs back all the Manashevitz, and look, Elijah drank the wine, everyone. And for a lot of Israeli families, Elijah is some, like, uncle with a fake beard who brings presents for all the kids at Passover. So Elijah is alive and well in our world even, too. What was it? So that's who Elijah is. Rabbi Judah, as a quick... Yeah, go ahead. So if Elijah never dies, isn't that making him more godlike? 
Elijah is this very interesting in-between character who seems to be able to peek behind the curtain and go talk to God, but also seems to be able to come down into our world and talk to us. Now, you know, it it occurs to me that Elijah ascending into heaven in a fiery chariot is a lot like Muhammad on a horse doing the same thing from the same spot. Wow, Uh, cool. did, Did the one come from the other? Historically speaking, I'm not sure that I can attest to Muhammad ascending on the horse being rooted in Elijah ascending in the fiery chariot. I'm not sure. It's a really interesting parallel to draw, though. I hadn't thought about that before, but that's what, fascinating. But what was the, the year? Muhammad doesn't come back, though, does he? Or well, does he? No, but he's got enough disciples to take care of things. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't met him, so I couldn't tell you. But yeah, Bert, go ahead. What year was Elijah? This predates... Christianity. This predates Christianity by a lot. Someone else who ascended. That's true too. So Elijah is in the Hebrew Bible originally. Is this character who is, as he says it, I kinakiniti. I am so. And this is an interesting thing in Hebrew. The words for zealous and jealous are the same. (laughs) Elijah was the one who is so zealous for God and slays the priests of the Baalim, these priests of this foreign god. He's kind of a violent guy in the. Um, Hebrew Bible, but he comes back, you know, as a much more gentle soul, so to speak, in joining the rabbis on their journeys. Yeah, Dana. Just a little flash that we don't have to elaborate on. It made me wonder about the characteristics of the golem. Of what? Of the golem. Ah. The golem compared to Elijah and what its purpose was. Very good. So... The golem is sort of its own interesting thing. I want to. I, mean, I don't want to go there. No, it's okay. I'm in a class because we went and read it. Yeah, no, of he course. Creates a golem to make a better life, and Elijah's the purpose of Elijah coming in. The golem is sort of a fascinating thing, and the golem comes from um, this verb galam to shape in that sense, and we have this idea of um, God shaping people, even in Genesis. So this idea that we then could use some kind of magic to shape this inanimate thing and give it animation. Um, there's another tradition that says about the golem that they, uh, to animate it, one would write the word emet, the Hebrew word for truth on its forehead. And if you wanted to kill it, you cross out the aleph. And so therefore you just have the word mate, dead. Yeah, exactly. So an interesting sort of parallel. We're not going to go deep into the golem, but absolutely, I have it on my uh, Craigslist ad on the other side of the page, so you're welcome to mention it. Um, Rabbi Judah, a quick piece of uh, backstory. Rabbi Judah the Hanasi, he was, well, yeah, that's right, Judah Hanasi was one of the most important rabbis. He was the one, the uh, editor and redactor of the Mishnah, who under his leadership um, basically codified the Mishnah in the year, by the year 220. He was born around 135 or so. Um, one of the greatest rabbis sort of of all time. So we have Rabbi, uh, we have Elijah the prophet coming to the academy of Rabbi Judah the patriarch. Who wants to continue? Or any other questions first before we continue? Is there any relation between yeah. Nasi and Nagi? Uh, no, those are different words. Nasi, it means prince in Hebrew. Uh, it then evolves later on. Today it's the word we use for president in Hebrew. Um, Nagid is um, one who tells in a sense. Um, we have Shmuel HaNagid, who was a Jewish communal, political, and military leader from the Middle Ages in Spain. Um, he's a fascinating character. He was a Jewish communal leader who led Muslim armies into combat against the Christians. Fascinating guy. Story for another time. Who wants to continue reading? Go ahead. One day, it was the day of the new moon, Elijah did not come to the prayers. When Elijah finally arrived, Rabbi Judah said, Why was the master late? Said Elijah, Today is the new moon, so I awakened Abraham, washed his hands 
waited for him to pray, and laid him back on his bed. Then I awakened Isaac, washed his hands, waited for him to pray, and then laid him back on his bed. Finally, I did the same for Jacob. And by the time I had finished, there was no time left. All right. By the way, Chodesh Tov. Have a, a wonderful new month to everybody. It is Rosh Chodesh, the new month today. Yeah, that's right. Rosh Chodesh Shvat. Um, so a good month to everybody. We're talking about on the day of the new moon, the new month, uh, Elijah is going and waking up the Avot, the patriarchs, for them to pray. And why is he called the master? Ah, good question. That seems to be a title of, or yeah, an expression of um, kavod, of honor. Respect. Yeah, respect in that way. Um, that's right. A lot, of, a lot of times the rabbis will even refer to one another that way, if one of them is the more senior rabbi, the teacher, and the other one is the disciple. Um, so that's, we see a lot of that. Other why, questions? Why is there a time limit? Why is there a time limit? Good question. Well, if you're going to pray three times a day, as the rabbis sort of innovate in, uh, you can see, Masechet Brachot, one thing they have to get into is timekeeping. Because if you have these set prayers you're supposed to say, uh, it matters when you say them. So they have to get into this whole enterprise of figuring out how to tell time, how to divide the day up into chunks of time. That gets wildly complicated as you might imagine that when they're trying to innovate timekeeping in the Talmud but they seem to put time limits around these things to say it's fitting to say the morning prayer only up to this point afterward you're in the afternoon prayer Um, and they pray three times a day traditionally uh, in sort of reference to the three temple sacrifices of the day so we still have in Jewish prayer today Shacharit in the morning Mincha in the afternoon and Ma'ariv at night Um, is it What wouldn't the morning prayers? He had to come to a group. Yes. And the group would do their prayers at a specific time. Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming that by the time he was done, the group was done, and yeah. since he wouldn't pray by himself, yeah, right, yeah. that 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 was what the timing issue. No, Fair inference, Bert. No time left, so if, you know if you missed the deadline, <clears> well, I guess I. Uh, yeah, and no, I was just assuming that the group by that time he was saying by the time I did that. We're the out of time. had already finished. Yeah, exactly. So I couldn't go there. Yeah. Laura, go ahead. What is this business of awakening Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Great question. I don't have an answer for you exactly. I mean, they're presumably dead. Dead. <laughs> and they also predate prayer. There wasn't prayer in this way in the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. Um Everything in terms of relationship to God during that time was sacrifice. It was all about sacrifice of animals, of grain, of this, of that. The priests performing the sacrifices. That was the way that we had a relationship with God. This whole prayer business is new. The rabbis are essentially innovating this prayer business post the destruction of Jerusalem and the second temple. We don't have a place we can go to sacrifice, make sacrifices to God. And so how do we have a relationship with God? Ah, the rabbis say, prayer. We can say words at certain times in a certain sequence, and that works for us to have a relationship with God. And so what's interesting is the rabbis are then taking that as an idea and superimposing it on the patriarchs. Yeah? I'm just wondering if the the Hebrew for awaken has another interpretation or sort of like calling to Abraham, calling upon whatever Abraham symbolizes, calling upon whatever the spirit of their elements to prayer. I think that in such a strange 
situation like this, the invitation very much is to try and conjecture and think up, what does this mean? What are the different resonances and symbolism? I mean, if we were doing this within Kabbalah, there are elements of God that resonate with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in particular. Now, Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism in that sense, is much later than Talmud, so it's sort of not historically fair to do that, but that would be one other way of thinking about the patriarchs as being aspects of divinity in that way. So there are a lot of different ways to slice it, and I think the just how strange it is gives us sort of an invitation to think about it more expansively. Other, Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, uh, the idea of the patriarchs praying, it's not clear whether it was the personal prayers when a person wakes up. I would think that's what it meant rather mm-hmm. than uh, shakari, where you have to have a minion and uh, do all that. So okay, I imagine it was the, the personal prayers. And so those don't take a long time. And there are additional prayers for Rosh Chodesh, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the fact that it was the new moon, that could have impact as well. We're all we're sort of conjecturing because we're not sure, but it's but, it's a good as point. As far as not having time, mm-hmm. the implication is that the the meeting at the academy, which he was going to mm-hmm. go, there was no that was over. Mm-hmm. But he missed it. But that wouldn't let me. You know, those I assume lasted most of the day. No. no. No, they didn't. Oh. Yeah, so the prayers, those prayer services would have been, you know, less than an hour each, we believe. Yeah, so uh, from that standpoint, yeah, if this whole thing is time-bound and laid out exactly what the timing of it all is, it sounds like Elijah just got there late. He missed it. I'm not sure that these are actually people. Okay. When it talks about Abraham and Jacob... Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it didn't seem to me that this was like a person named Abraham. Ah. But that there was more symbolism to this, and this was more the spirit. So I could totally go in the uh, Kabbalistic direction there, although we do have this very strange part about washing the hands, neti lat yadayim. It's a very tactical, not tactical, tactile thing in that sense, um, which is interesting. Grant and then Sarah. Uh, Lawrence, is there another, is it possible that the, that the Another good question. Talmud is written in different languages. A lot of it's Mishnaic Hebrew, a lot of it's Aramaic, um, and a lot of it's sort of a blend of them all. So, <laughs> so linguistically, it can be challenging. Um, and the Aramaic that they have is incredibly irregular. It sort of reflects the orality of it in that sense. Um, you get the sense that this isn't a structured, grammatically precise linguistic thing in this sense. So this is a mix of all of it. Yeah, go ahead. Since Abraham is really the first in Judaism, the father... The covenant! Yeah. Yeah. So Elijah, like... Um, a, a good descendant mm-hmm. is honoring him. Lovely. To wake him for prayers. Uh, a beautiful and sort of tender drosh on what this could be in that relationship in that sense. Did I see another hand over? Yeah. Yeah, so it implies that he only did this on Rosh Kodesh. That's the suggestion. Since it was a new moon, then he awakened them. So the implication is that other days he didn't. Could be connected, very much so. Well, let's and keep. Didn't answer the question of why he didn't pray with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
That's true too. Which he could have, which theoretically could have done. Ostensibly, he could have done he just that. Was, he just was standing by the side and say, well, "Okay, he woke up earlier. do your thing." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe he got up even earlier to put uh, on his tefillin okay, and everything. All right, who wants to continue? Get a brave volunteer. Why didn't you waken them all at the same time? Asked Rabbi Judah. Said Elijah, "I reasoned that if they all prayed together." they would have the power to bring the Messiah before his time. Ah. We wouldn't want that. Yes. I guess. So here's an interesting idea. There might be something that Elijah could do to bring the Messiah too early, inappropriately, so to speak, that the power of these of the three avot praying all together might do something in the world that's not supposed to happen. Questions? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's isn't yeah. God sure. supposed to send the Messiah? That would be sort of the default position that we're assuming that God would be um, part of triggering this whole messianic thing. But now we have the suggestion that maybe it could be triggered inappropriately at the wrong time or place. Yeah. This gets back to Elijah being one who sort of gets to peek behind the curtains. If you remember back to the very first, anyone who was here for the very first Talmudic story we learned, and it was this whole debate about this oven, and the rabbis all arguing with each other, and at the end, that we've proclaimed the Torah is not in heaven, the Torah is in our world. One of the rabbis then turns to Elijah and says, what did God say when we were in the middle of this debate? Elijah gets to go back and forth. He gets to peek behind the curtain. He sort of knows things knows secrets that maybe um, people don't, or maybe they shouldn't for that matter. Other questions? Yeah, go ahead. Just a question. Yeah. It, it sounds like he would come and pray regularly with Rabbi Judah. Yeah. And then now Rabbi Judah seems shocked that if it was the first, if it was the day of the new moon, that this was happening and wondering why he's late. But mm-hmm. if he prayed with him regularly, would, he, would this not be a regular thing he would do for every new moon? Is this something shocking, or is this something that's just occurring? This one special new moon? Clearly, we've had new months before. Why? What's different about this? Good question. Um, the text doesn't provide an obvious answer to it. I'll put it like that. The other question to me, though, is it says it talks about Elijah would come to the academy, come to the Beit Midrash. It's not clear what he's doing there. Maybe he's praying with them. Maybe he's studying with them. Elijah, oftentimes, if anybody remember, I gave a whole high holiday sermon around some of this. Elijah stops. Uh, when Rabbi Yossi is praying in the ruins of Jerusalem and Elijah sort of comes down the road and sees him and then stops and waits for him to finish his prayer and then says, by the way, just so you know, you shouldn't pray in ruins. You're supposed to pray on the journey rather than in the ruins. So it seems like Elijah comes by for this stuff. Not clear to the extent to which he participates in it, though. It's a good question. Yeah. The other thing I was thinking here is that if Rabbi Judah has to ask him Mm-hmm. what he was doing with these people, then he doesn't do it all the time. Then it would be this exceptional. A special occasion. So, I mean, but what's the special occasion? I don't know. Sounds exceptional to me. I think not, you're right. If this had been... every month. That's right. If this had been part of his regular routine, Rabbi Judah would have known about this. So this is an interesting thing there. Who wants to continue... Oh, was that a hand? Do you have a question? Guess not. All right. Who wants to continue reading for us? Rabbi, <coughs> Rabbi Judah asked, And are there those in this world who are like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Yes, said Elijah. There's Rabbi Chia and his sons. Rabbi Chia. Chia bar Abba. Usually it gets... Yeah, I know. We need an underline. The the, the, the chach to it. Chia. Rabbi Chia bar Abba. 
um, emigrated from Babylonia to the land of Israel and studied under Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Hanina, and Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi. Um, he was very, very poor and impoverished, but he was this great Torah scholar. And so Rabbi Judah actually appointed him to go tour all of the different academies at one point. Um, he lived to a very old age, and all of his sons became great Torah scholars. A little bit of background on Rabbi Chia. Other questions there? Pretty straightforward, this part. Rabbi, Eli, Rabbi Judah asks, are there people in the world who are like the three of them in order to, you know, and I would suggest that the inference is that they could possibly trigger this Mashiach thing inappropriately? And Elijah says, yes, there's Rabbi Chia and his group. This is pretty straightforward. Straightforward enough. Well, yeah. I thought it was, but <laughs> the, the patriarchs mm-hmm. are elevated to a very unique place. It's amazing that mm-hmm. anybody would say that there are, in our time, people like these three special patriarchs. Yes, those avot. When you were saying patriarch, I assume you're talking about Abraham, Isaac, and yes. Jacob, and not yes. Judah the patriarch. No, yeah. I was referring to Abraham, Isaac. And That's Jacob. right. So people who are that kind of black belt in prayer, such that they can perform <laughs> wondrous things when it is that they pray. Um, that's a pretty remarkable thing to be elevating Rabbi Chia of all people to that level. That's right. Other questions, other thoughts, or observations. It strikes me just yeah. it's a great you can sort of see the gears turning in Rabbi Judah's head when you then read on. So anybody else around that I might call on who has powers like Let's continue. This next paragraph has some Hebrew in it. You might recognize the Hebrew. You might not. Um, if you don't, you can just jump down to the bottom and use that English translation that I have there footnoted for you. But uh, can I get a brave volunteer to take us through this next paragraph? Rabbi Judah decreed a fast because of drought and appointed Rabbi Chia and his sons to lead the prayers. Rabbi Chia recited Mashiach HaRuach and the wind gusted. Very good. He recited Umorit HaKashem and the rain came. When he was about to recite Mechayi Hametim, the world trembled. They said in heaven, who has revealed the mysteries of the world? Busted. Busted. <laughs> others, we don't know who others, others said it was Elijah. They brought Elijah and struck him with the pulse de Nura. Elijah, in the guise of a fiery bear, came among them and scattered them. Big finish. All right. What just happened here? Bert, you knew those pieces of Hebrew pretty quickly. What are those from? They are from the, I think it's the second paragraph of the Amidah. Very good. And they talk about the power of God. Mm -hmm. And in that, uh, they talk about God as being merciful and uh, healing the sick and uh, clothing the, uh, the naked. Probably not clothing the naked, but that's not one of them. But then also God in nature. And there is one line that is said in winter and not in the summer, which is Mashif Haruah Humarid HaKashem. Correct. Which is that makes the, the wind blow and the rain come. In the summer, it's Marid Hatal. Which brings, brings down the, the dew. dew. And the Michaye Hametim <laughs> is the end of the last blessing, the last line of that, which talks about God as resurrecting or bringing back the dead. So, if you have a bar or bat mitzvah at KI, (laughs) 
you know how to chant this, with one exception. So in our Reconstructionist liturgy, Atagi bor leolam Adonai, Rav lehoshia, Mashiv haruach, Omorid hagashem, Mechokel chayim bechesed. That's not what we do. It's not what we do. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that part, um, where what we don't do, is it fast forwards all the way? Rabim. That in the conservative and orthodox would be would be Rabim. Thank you. So we've changed the words in the Reconstructionist liturgy to take out um, to take out take out resurrecting the dead, and now it's about giving life to all life that there is. Um, but who did God revive? So there's an idea that in this messianic time there is going to be a great resurrection. There is That's resurrection within Judaism. That's later on. That's when and around the messianic stuff. Um, this is why in Judaism you have traditions about making sure that people are buried whole um, and not uh, necessarily cremated or anything like that. Or if um, there's a terrorist attack, they're very careful to collect all of the body parts and everything for burial. Because there's this idea in um, a lot of Judaism that we are going to be one day resurrected with the coming of the Mashiach. And in fact, people pay a pr- great premium to be buried in certain places in Jerusalem so that they can have a front row seat to this whole um, this whole resurrection that's going to happen in the Messianic time. Other questions about this. So this is basically the Amidah prayer that we have every single Shabbat uh, that we have here that Rabbi Chia is going through and he says, Mashiv HaRuach, Marit HaGashem, that he says, who makes the wind blow and the rains to fall. But when he says, Mashiv HaRuach, the winds actually blow. And when he says, Marit HaGashem, the rains actually come down. It seems like it's causing this. And so they get right up to the point of Michaye Hametim, the resurrection of the dead, and full stop. Now that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Because um, this shows that Rabbi Chia, that, that Judah was right, Rabbi Chia actually has this power. Correct. And this was a drought. He said there was a drought when he said it and they brought the rain. Yes. We get these people who seem to be able with their prayer to force God's hand. So that God's could be not a all powerful. Yeah, or is God or I mean this is one of the big questions. Like for instance in the book of Samuel in the Hebrew Bible, they get all this stuff talking about don't perform necromancy and other kinds of magic things with the dead. They don't say that it doesn't work. They just tell you don't do it. You're not supposed to. We have him consulting with the witches of Endor. Um, Again, these people doing some kind of magical thing that's inappropriate and wrong and you're not supposed to do. Rabbis aren't telling you that it doesn't work. They're telling you that there's danger in this stuff, in fact. Other thoughts? Other questions? Yeah? Well, what keeps running in my mind is almost Mm-hmm. And in our culture, there is a fear that, God forbid, we succeed mm. in bringing about a messianic age or bringing back a messiah. Or, God forbid, we all come together in peace. And that there are multiple families and rabbis and sons that can make this happen, and it's not just God. And that there's these powers exist in multiple pockets of human beings and I don't, I don't want to go beyond other religions, other sure. people, because I also believe in that. Yeah. But 
And almost that uh, Elijah is almost like a wizard of Oz mm. in this story. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like he's playing us. Well, he's and pulling the levers. He's, he's behind the curtain. Yep. And there's a truth. Mm-hmm. And, and God forbid we discover that truth. That many ways we can reach this messianic place. Whether you believe in the Messiah, or whether you believe in a messianic era, or whether you believe in a time when we all live in peace. Mickey, did you want to jump in too? Well, if we're created Elohim in the image of God, then we ourselves are godly and have the ability to create a better world. Isn't there, isn't there along with that, isn't there the sense that if we do mitzvot and live right that that will help bring the Messiah at some point? So here's a really deep and sort of profound fundamental tension within Judaism. How much are we supposed to do ourselves versus how much does God do for us? We get this all the way back to the Exodus when God delivers us with a mighty hand and outstretched arm from, you know, with all the wonders and portents from Pharaoh and his oppression. But we have to take the first step. We have Nachshon, the one who is, takes the first step into the water waiting for it to split. What's going to happen? So there's an extent to which we really are partners with God in a lot of this stuff. Now, the question then is about to what extent are we partners in this messianism? That gets to be a much more complicated and fraught thing. Dana, did you want to weigh in on that? Well, um, so this tractate was written for people to reread or rehear. Mm-hmm. It, is it a warning? Is it political to make sure Elijah is looked at in a certain way, the way the, you know, the redactor wanted us to see it? Good question. Yeah. Nope, (laughs) because I think different rabbis and different sources and different eras, it meant different things to different Jewish people. I think it's one of these things that is so multivalent that for me to define it with one single answer wouldn't do justice to it. But I think you're asking the right question. Absolutely. Yeah. I think the operative word, at least for me as a reconstructionist, is the partnership aspect. Okay. And the double-edged sword here, when you look at this, is... You know, it's wonderful to be able to do these things theoretically, mm-hmm. but there's also the the danger, the peril that's inherent in overshooting mm-hmm. and not recognizing the partnership aspect of it. Sure. And thinking that you can cross these borders and do it. Mm-hmm. There can, you know, it points to the mysteries. In other words, we don't know everything. Mm-hmm. There's a partnership going on here. So we're going to return to the messianic element of it um, in another session. I'm actually going to, we're going to bring this text back and look at it next to another text that is much more about messianism. But suffice it to say that there is real discomfort around messianism within even the rabbis of this era. Yes, it's something that they're praying for, but these are rabbis who have seen the Jesus movement and what happened with that. These are rabbis who watched what happened with the Bar Kokhva revolt. Um, elevating this uh, insurrectionist Bar Kokhva from being Bar Kosiba, Shimon Bar Kosiba, renaming him Bar Kokhva, the son of a star, and that his uprising became messianic in nature. And that killed tens if not hundreds of thousands of people. So I think there's a recognition that this is playing with fire in and around some of the messianism. But we're going to come back to that um, in another session. Um, I want to continue this Pulse de Nora. That is a curious thing. 
strictly translated, it comes out to these 60 lashes of fire. Um, there's another story about heresy and apostasy, and the penalty for heresy becomes the pulse de nura. Um, it seems to be some kind of dark rabbinic curse. When we got a question over here, are there dark Talmudic arts? Here's one. Now, here's where I wanted to go with this, and that's sort of an interesting thing today. In October 6th, 1995, a group of settler rabbis got together under the cover of darkness to pronounce the Pulse de Nura over Yitzhak Rabin. He was killed shortly thereafter. So there's a group of people who believe that you can use this in our world to kill people. So here's the question. Was the assassin aware of that? I don't know. I don't think so. Um, There is another group I have. Why did they do it in the first place? Because they were concerned about a peace deal with the Palestinians and pulling out of that land. And they thought, here's this guy who is an enemy of our project to settle all of the land um, and is going to turn this land over to enemies in terms of the Palestinians. And they cursed him. So they cursed him. Oh. Additionally, um, we have that in 2005, a group of rabbis pronounced the Pulse de Nura over Ariel Sharon, who six months later then suffered two strokes and suffered in that time until 2014 when he died. Because Sharon was talking about at the time, we've sort of, this was again during the second intifada, Sharon was saying we've hit the limit uh, to what we can do with military power. We can't bomb our way out of this political situation. We have to make peace. And there was talk... 2005 was the Gaza disengagement, and then there was talk that he might be involved with a plan called Convergence to pull people out of the West Bank, too, as part of a two-state solution. So, here... Yeah. One of them was self-reported around Rabin. Um, some of them I had a hard time getting to the actual, like getting to actual verified reports, but it was all over the media about people using this Pulse de Nura in our contemporary time. Yeah. So we have our Salman Rushdie moments. Yeah, we have our Salman Rushdie moments. Well put. Carol. What kind of rabbis are these? I mean, I mean like, yeah. their mothers on a clock their heads together. <laughs> so, and the question... Is there any sort of Counterspell? Yeah. Trial. Trial. Or body of reason that then castigates them or takes away their, I don't know what. Yeah. Anybody extremists in every religion? Yes. I would quote Rabbi Brad Artson who said religion is extremely powerful and it can be extremely powerful for good and it can be extremely powerful for bad. That's right. Robert, did you... Uh... No, no, that, 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 I think both of you just said the same thing. Lots of, there are so many examples of these pronouncements by various religious groups or even non-religious groups of a fatwa or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, a curse on... And either directly or completely indirectly, I mean, if that kind of talk mm-hmm. goes on either directly or indirectly... 
bad things tend to happen by somebody else. Right. A lot of people use that as an argument against religion. I was sure. an article, it, it was about, a lot of people say, well, religion has caused more wars than anything else, well, but, but there was a listing of the number of people killed in history that we could track down in religious wars, and the number of people killed in secular wars. And secular wars was many, many, many more people killed. Correct. Than ever in religious wars. The greatest killers we have in history, Mao killed probably 50 million people, Stalin killed 20 million, Hitler 10 million or so, something like that, all of whom were a-religious. Um, yeah. You can, it's been argued that they had their own religion. That they elevated the state or nationalism yes, or whatever to become its own religion. Well, you can make that argument. With, with, but if you're talking about religious systems, ancient yeah. religious systems, um, that's a little different. So... Part of where I wanted to go with this, and part of why I brought in... Flip, turn the page again. Oh, you want to go to the last sentence first? Sure, go ahead. Elijah went and broke up the prayer of these people before they could bring this messianic thing. Elijah's... This is an unclear antecedent. It says he came among them. So did he come among the people in heaven, or did he come among the other people? The implication, I think, here is that Elijah burst out and stopped this prayer as a fiery bear before they could inappropriately bring the Mashiach. But they didn't write it very well, then, did they? They play very fast and loose with their pronouns in the Talmud. Can you clarify the, the days? Which the, days are which? I'm, I'm lost. Sure. So, so the Talmud loves to, is famous for every other word as a pronoun. So who is actually saying what at one point or another? To clarify this as best I can, um, they said in heaven is probably, you ever heard the phrase Adonai Tzvaot, the Lord of hosts? Yes. This is probably the host speaking, the host, the angels, the ministering ones up there. They were the ones who said in heaven, wait, who was the one who, who, who uh, divulged this to Rabbi Judah? And then others said, so some others of this host probably said, Elijah did that. So then they, whoever the they is, this probably this host still, maybe God, um, unleashed the pulse de Nura on Elijah. Elijah then in turn takes on the form of this fiery bear and scatters what I believe are the prayers back on earth before they can say Mechaye Hametim and cause something really messianic. Uh, to happen before it's supposed to. So this them this, when he came among them. Is the, not them the them there, heaven. I believe, is the not them the down them here. Them, no. The them Lamata, not Lamala. Um, so yes, yeah, so that's just to take us through the end of it. Now I want to turn the page. Back to the golem thing. I'll bet all of us read this at the beginning and thought, what kind of nonsense is this? Mm -hmm. This is kind of like juvenile. It's like stupid. Like... This is why I, when I was in rabbinical school with some buddies of mine, thought, this is hilarious. Let's call these people and see who they actually are. This will be great. Um, but we didn't take it seriously. I, and I don't think the people who wrote this took it seriously either. Now, with all this stuff about we're not looking for, we're looking for a golem, not Golem, the little Lord of the Rings character looking for his precious. I get the sense that they're treating it as parody as well. Um, the question is, to what extent do we take these prayers and these things seriously? Do you believe in the Pulse de Nura? Do you believe in the Misha Barach healing prayer? 
Do you believe in the power of of Kadisha Tom, the mourner's Kaddish, to alter these things? What do these things mean? We say Morid Hagashim, Mashiva Ruach, Morid Hagashim, that brings the rains in the appropriate time and whatnot. To what extent are we sitting there thinking about the rains coming at the right time? What is your relationship with this stuff? Anybody can jump in at this point. Does it work? Yeah. I think this has come up last year. Self-fulfilling prophecy. Ah. Not to be sacrilegious at all. Yeah. The self-fulfilling prophecy, which I was reading into the, it was, you know, just it's interesting to see. Like, was that something back then, or was it just all, you know, they all drink the Kool-Aid? It was all. It was all. Good question. And to what extent does prayer not? trying to push God's hand to do one action or another, but to what extent does prayer reflect what we believe or what we think? Um, I'm going to take us back again to this reconstructionist change in the Amidah that we edited out, Michaye Hametim, because the reconstructionists, the classical reconstructionists, didn't believe in that kind of messianic resurrection of people. But we can get behind saying, Michaye Kolchai, who gives uh, life, the life breath to all of life. That that's something we can believe in, actually, even if we're not sure that we believe in uh, this resurrection. It's the same reason we don't have a Musaf service as part of our Shacharit service. That service was in reference to uh, temple worship, and it evokes this idea of longing for a third temple. And the Reconstructionist and Reform movements edited out that entire service from Saturday mornings because we're, yeah, because we're not necessarily hoping for a third temple. We know what kind of destruction would happen if you destroyed those Muslim holy sites that are on top of the Temple Mount to try and build a third temple. That would be a horribly violent thing. There was a plot in the 80s to blow up the Dome of the Rock, actually, by a bunch of extremists. Um, And so somewhere along the lines, Reconstructionist and Reform religious leaders said, you know what, we're not actually longing for that. We don't want our prayer to reflect that as an ideal. So we're going to edit our prayer. Uh, It's the same reason that we edited chosenness out of our prayer as Reconstructionists. We don't do the whole Bachar Banu thing because that's the ideal. The The early Reconstructionists felt like chosenness feels particularistic if not chauvinistic in fact to all the other people who can't be chosen then so we edit that to um, God bringing us close to God's service so what, what's up with prayer what is prayer go ahead on the other hand on the other hand I'm gonna thank you Bert contrary, please please do view, just my take yeah um, to me these words are a challenge mm-hmm. they were obviously written by human beings mm-hmm our ancestors, our predecessors Mm -hmm. in this whole, as you call it, the the Jewish project. Mm -hmm. And given the the world they live in Mm -hmm. and what they knew, these had a meaning for them. And so I'm very hesitant to throw that out without trying to understand what is the analogous meaning for me right now. Beautiful. So if you take, I don't have a problem with Hamitim, the resurrection of the dead, mm-hmm. because I don't believe it in terms of, you know, the bodies are going to get up and everybody's going to dance around. <laughs> but for me, it's an invitation to try and understand what was this all about? What was their feeling about the future? What was their feeling that somehow in the end, everything could very well turn out okay? And that all the goodbyes that we say today 
might not be final goodbyes. So, to me, that language that I don't understand, and, and I'm just talking personally, mm-hmm. I'm not a big fan of changing the language, mm-hmm. not because I just don't want to change a language, but in a way we lose something, because we lose trying to sort out what was it that made these really, really smart rabbis, what, what's, what's, what's the metaphor today mm-hmm. that matches the metaphor then? You asked before about, you know, does prayer change God? You know, if, well, there was a time when people were trying to understand the world and they didn't know why things happened. And they thought, actually, if I pray X, I can make God do Y. Mm-hmm. We can't believe that, most of us. In yeah. most cases, yeah. although sometimes we'd like to believe it, mm-hmm. because we have a different vision of what the world is about mm-hmm. through through science. Mm-hmm. But we still have, we still want to try and think in some way. How, how do we affect what happens? So, so to I, me, it's not. I mean, it's not. Someone once said, "Not me." Someone smarter than me. <laughs> that. Uh, the question isn't, does God hear my prayers? Mm-hmm. The question is, do I hear my prayers? Lovely. I am friends with a conservative rabbi who once was responding to the Reconstructionist changes in liturgy, and he said, you know, I still pray a lot of stuff I don't believe in, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean my children or grandchildren won't be smart enough to figure, figure out the out deeper truth of this that I haven't, which I thought was a lovely defense of it. Go ahead, Mickey. Could that uh, the, the thought of resurrection come from the Valley of dry bones. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So that Ezekiel vision of the dry bones um, and all kinds of Ezekiel stuff. Ezekiel is a very far out text anyway, and a lot of it is impacted by other Zoroastrian practice that we think was impacting Ezekiel's perception in the Far East, that a lot of that was happening in, happening in Babylonia, and he's on all kinds of probably drug-fueled visions and seeing these things and what have you. So yeah, there very much could be a connection there. You're right to draw that, to connect those dots. Yeah, go ahead, sir. I think you can make your own interpretation mm-hmm. of these things without relying on God to resurrect Mm. I think every time I think of my ancestors, my mother, my father, I'm resurrecting them in a way. And when I see my grandchildren um, do things that they would have loved to see, they are with us. So um, I think what these prayers really do for many of us is focus us on our own interpretation, our own powers, and what is possible. Beautiful. So you recite Mourner's Kaddish, for instance, not in order to ensure that someone gets into heaven, not as a mechanism to make sure that their soul goes to the right place or whatever, but reciting Kaddish Yatom in that sense is an act of Michayeh HaMetim. It gives life in some ways through memory to those who may no longer be with us. I think it was Kaplan who said our challenge is how we take the Torah, and I'll say Torah slash prayer, seriously without taking it literally. Yes. And it's too easy to throw it out. I mean, even Torah. You look yeah. what's in the Torah. There's so much there. You say, oh, come on. But it's, it's metaphor. Mm-hmm. It's poetry. And it speaks in ways 
that one plus one equals two doesn't. Sure. Other thoughts about this whole business of prayer, saying a Misha Berach for someone who's sick. Do we think it's working? Can't hurt. Can't hurt. Probably couldn't hurt, unlike this business here. We've done scientific studies to try to determine if... I I don't know the results. Go ahead. Keep going. Yep, I know where you're going. I recall them Mm -hmm. doing that to see if, I don't know, worldwide or whatever, if it was sort of collective prayer. The Russians did that. The Soviets did it. And I think one of the things they they found was that there was an inverse proportion of power of prayer with how close you were to what you were praying about. That is, the farther away you were, the more power the prayer had. Interesting. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the reason it's impossible scientifically is there's there was no guarantee that the other people that were in the control group weren't being prayed for by yeah. others. How did you know the other sick people weren't being? How do you control for that in a study? It's a good point. Plus, you don't, you don't know what would happen to the people if you didn't pray. That's true too. <laughs> yeah, right. Go ahead, Robert. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I don't have an opinion about whether praying for somebody else is really going to be good or not. But I think that uh, science at this point does believe in, in mind-body connection to some degree in terms of how you you feel about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called placebo. No, I don't think it's that simple. Uh, I don't happen to think it's that simple. And so Mm -hmm. to the degree that that you know that others are with you, Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps that helps you and your own mind-body connection. That's about as far as I can go. I'm sure everybody in this room Mm -hmm. has had a situation where a loved one or a close friend has been incredibly, incredibly sick and we felt really, really helpless. What can we do? How can we connect? In that moment, I can't just sit there and say, well, prayer has nothing, so I'm not going to do anything. Right. I think prayer has, and it may in fact have more of an effect on the prayer than the prayee. Mm-hmm. But it's better than just sitting there and crying or yelling at God because someone has cancer. Mm-hmm. It, it takes one to a place of at least trying to cope with it. Mm-hmm. And I, I I don't see any harm to it. Sure, go ahead. I happen to be very familiar with the research literature. On okay. This, and there's absolutely no question that people who feel supported mm-hmm. and are in a community and have that sense that their biology changes. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. their stress hormones change. There's all kinds of things that happen. doesn't mm-hmm. mean that they're cured of terminal illnesses, mm-hmm. but it can have an effect. So then it's not the prayer. It's the knowing that people are, or believing that people are right. going to be, whether or not they yeah. are. Yeah, if you're part of a religious community, for example, or you, you pray yourself and that helps you to gain support, wherever you're getting it from other people, Other thoughts and voices who want to jump in to this conversation? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I've always, you know, curious what you know what your position is as far as there are a great many mysteries in the world. (laughs) (laughs) And one of them, I think, is to what extent. Again, I return to that tension between what God might do for us 
versus the things that we are sort of called to do in the world for one another and for sacred communities. And I talk about that as a tension and a mystery because I don't even think the line there is entirely clear. So what is prayer doing in the world? Um, is it helping people? Is it taking care of people? Is it uplifting them in some of the darkest points of their lives? Maybe. Is it also perhaps speaking to some of our darkest impulses? Maybe. Um, in that way, I, what Bert was saying about religion can be a power for great good or terrible evil, that there is great capacity within all of it um, to wreak certain kinds of effects in the world. Do I think the Pulse de Nura went and, like, killed Israeli prime ministers? Well, I don't know that I'd go that far, but I think that if you really take Misha Barach seriously, then it's hard to discount the flip side of that same coin, which is the Pulse de Nora as well, that it's hard to take the one without the other in that sense. But again, this is where I sort of double down on the mystery of it all and the mystery of how much is our agency and how much is God's and where do we meet um, holiness in the world. I mean, the Kabbalists would even go so far as to say, kind of like what Bert was saying in terms of the mitzvot you perform in the world, that changes the composition of God. Kabbalists would tell you that the mitzvot and the good deeds you perform in the world affect the alignment of the different emanations, the spherot of God, affecting the flow of God's goodness and holiness in this world, that we actually can change God's alignment based on what brachot we say and what mitzvot we do in the world. That's an awful lot of power to ascribe to people. Um, or is, do we have the God of the mighty hand and outstretched arm who performs wonders and portents and miracles? These are all voices from within our tradition. And that's where I return to the mystery, because all of it's present in that way. There isn't even a single answer from Judaism. Yeah? Yeah, but Reconstructionism rejects a supernatural God. So, um, and, 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 and a God that interferes in the affairs of man. Some reconstructionists do, but I would suggest that because we don't have a central committee of law and standards or a CCAR or something like that, um, we are a very sort of disparate yeah. movement in that sense. So there are a lot of reconstructionist ideals and thoughts and rabbis. There's a whole legacy of what you're describing. And Mordechai Kaplan talking about God is the process that makes for salvation. That's not a terribly supernatural being. And, hey, there's a big resurgence in, you know, practices in and around Kabbalah within Reconstructionist yeah, Judaism, finish. too. So there's a lot. My comment. <laughs> and, and, and when I learned about Reconstructionism, God is within us. So when we're praying to God, we're praying to ourselves and to humanity. And so if we were to start out without the tradition and just take Reconstructionism as it is from the beginning, you know, without the baggage from, from behind, from before, which, you know, at least in this connection, um, then we, uh, we might still pray to God, but we might not say God, we might say humanity or myself or, or my circle of friends, my community. Um, and it would... I think have the same effect that you had mentioned that if people are part of a community and they know that people are concerned about them, praying for them or you know, carrying them in their hearts, that that has an impact on their attitude and it can it can affect their, them physi physiologically, physically. So. Um, 
not sure where I was going on that. I just wanted to express my thoughts on So some of what you describe actually sounds a little bit like secular humanistic Judaism, Judaism, where they excise God out of a lot of the prayers and bless the human hands who created this food or this um, bounty or whatever. Other Jewish tradition would think of that as being kind of heretical, actually, to put humanity in place of God. Mm-hmm. So it's an interesting question. About well, I don't know if it's the, the creation of food, that's nature. You know. <laughs> and, and, and you can equate God with nature. Um, it's, you know, humans don't create the sun that, creates, that has the energy uh, to, create, to grow food and, and, and sustain life. So uh, it's not putting the power in humanity. That's one way to slice it for sure. Mickey, you had a hand too. Um, Well, there are a lot of aspects to prayer, uh, but basically uh, uh, much of prayer can be summed up in two words, wow and thanks. Yes. I would add one more to your definition, gimme, (laughs) asking for stuff. Um, that you could slice prayers, a lot of prayer is pretty much those three things. Wow, thanks, and gimme. <laughs> You're absolutely right, Mickey. Yeah, go ahead, Mark. I'd like to speak of Reconstructionism one second. Mordecai <laughs> Kaplan, whose uh, writings inspired the whole Reconstructionist mm-hmm. movement, was in fact an Orthodox Jew who was Orthodox in practice Correct. until the day he died, who did not change the prayers. He, okay... The, the whole, what, what you described, which is one take of what I would call the far left of Reconstructionism, um, there are people who, who believe that, but there is also a lot of Reconstructionist thought that is struggling with how we talk about God, and that is very concerned not to take God out of the equation. Mm-hmm. And it's not just God, but it's peoplehood. Is one of the things that Kaplan said was belonging comes before believing. And for him being part of the Jewish people, which has nothing to do with secular humanism or Jewish humanism, is an important aspect of Jewish life. So um, you're talking about one aspect, again, what I would call one far... School of thought. I say school of thought within Reconstructionism, but... It certainly is not the whole picture. I have been a Reconstructionist synagogues and, go, and, and gone to their uh, services, which were almost indistinguishable from conservative. Really? Okay. Interesting. Minus that change that we just saw. Yeah. Exactly. Right. I didn't even notice that change. It was just so much Hebrew there. <laughs> yeah. And congregants chanting Torah. I mean, I'm talking about a regular Saturday Saturday service, and you know the issue. And this is one thing that people. If God is, nobody's disputing that God is within us, but if God is only within us, that's a whole other thing. And if God is only within us, and all the human beings on this earth are gone, that's different. Go ahead. Just point of information, back mm-hmm. to this Pulse de Nura yeah. and Rabine. Yeah. The person who assassinated Rabin went to the same... Jewish Orthodox Day School was Rita Efros, which was very, very innovative school. He was certifiably mentally... Yigal Amir. I don't know the name of it, but Rita has told me this countless times. And he was mentally ill. Now, the power of words, if he knew that this prayer was being said, this happens in this country as well. 
you know these exhortations and prayers and you're a little, you're off or you're at one end of the spectrum, it can really trigger you to do this. So that's the downside of it. Yeah. That's part of the mental illness. In addition, so putting, setting aside some of the mental illness around acts of violence like that, ours is a tradition that believes words have incredible power. Um, we, yes, we have um, God who acts to create the world. How does God create the world? By talking through words. Speech is what actually creates all of existence. So we're a tradition that ascribes incredible power to what is said and what you mean and how you say it and the words you use. We're going to come to an end here. Um, I appreciate Todd's question about, you know, what do you believe in all of this stuff? And I don't want to tell you all what you all should believe or the experience you have in it. I would say that Judaism is big enough to have a lot of different answers to this. And you could probably find um, a school of thought or a perspective that speaks to you in terms of what's happening when you say the Misha Berach prayer. What happens in the world when you say the Mourner's Kaddish, Kaddish Yatom? What happens when you say these words, Mashiv HaRuach, Marid HaGashem? What do you mean when you say what are those people doing when they use the pulse de nura in this sense um, in that sense this becomes to me a text about uh, the power of our intentions the power of our faith and our words um, and the power of prayer all of those things all woven together and there's some cautionary element to this that um, it is incumbent upon us to think very carefully what is we say, what it is we pray for, how it is we pray in the world. Um, maybe we modify the words like the Reconstructionists do to more fit our worldview, to uplift what it is we believe in. Maybe you don't, as uh, Bert and my conservative rabbinic friends say, maybe you keep the mystery of words that you don't have an easy time believing in because there's mystery around it and because mystery is central to all of this tension about what are these things doing and how is it um, unfolding in the world around us. So a bit of rabbinic perspective on what it means to pray. So thank you all for coming this evening. Great to learn with you all.